Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This week, I'm Caroline Hyde. This podcast is some of our favorite interviews from the Daily Market Close Show that I co-anchored with Romain Bostic, Taylor Riggs, and Joe Weisenthal. What you miss? It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. This week, Jackson Hole went virtual. The Federal Reserve's annual symposium met remotely, but Jay Powell did not need the grand mountainous backdrop to unveil a major new policy approach for the central bank. After more than a year of review, the Fed chair said the monetary policymakers will now let inflation run higher than their past target of 2%, in hopes that employment will run higher along with it. This shift will likely keep interest rates low for years to come. We got the reaction from Diane Swank, the chief economist at Grant Thornton. We started by asking her, well, how the central bank would get inflation to 2%, let alone above it. Well, that's the key issue. And I think what you're seeing is, first of all, markets are finally sort of accepting this idea that the Fed's goal here is to actually it realize the only way it can level the playing field over time is to have workers' share of the economy rise, wages' share of the economy rise, and the profit share fall um, with higher inflation, which isn't necessarily good for the overall market. So I think that's some of the volatility you're seeing out there. But more broadly, the Fed has a credibility issue, as you've already mentioned. They've not even been able to hit their target of 2%. So when they're talking about overshooting for a period of time that it averages 2%, that's, you know, and not overshooting by a lot, by two and a quarter to two and a half percent, as Rob Kaplan of the um, of the Dallas Fed said today, that kind of overshooting means basically low rates, near zero rates forever in a day. Yeah, and it means that, and that's how the market's interpreting it, Diane. I guess the question is, is there any sort of metric here or any sort of guidepost uh, that the market is going to be able to use to sort of gauge exactly what that threshold is where the Fed does step in. I didn't really hear that from Powell today, and it's not really clear to me that there is any sort of uh, threshold that we can point to. There's not a consensus, and that's what's clear, and this is an experiment along with everything else. So it's an evolutionary leap, but not a revolutionary step. And I think that's really important, is the Fed has already been talking about a symmetric inflation target for some time. So going to an average is really kind of a compromise that clearly they don't have an agreement on what the actual triggers will be. And part of that is because they've been humbled by using actual triggers in the past. They thought that they could preempt inflation and sort of raise rates in 2018 and then had to reverse course on that in 2019 and then more dramatically, of course, with the onset of the COVID recession. And I think that's where the humility comes in and that's why they're not having these hard, steadfast rules is because the world no longer goes by those steadfast rules and there's sort of um, also a lack of consensus within the Fed, which you're seeing reflected in that kind of statement as well. Within your world of economics, I'm curious about how you're also looking at what the signals the bond markets are telling us. You're at 74 basis points on the 10-year, approaching 150 pretty quickly on the 30-year. Are we entering an era of a little bit higher rates on the long end of that yield curve as the Fed remains anchored on the short end? 
Well, we'll see. I, I, I hate to sort of get too far ahead of this because so far central banks, and this came up at the Jackson Hole meetings today, is that central banks really think this is a, dis a disinflationary impulse, that COVID will lower inflation. Of course, what we worry about is, one, inflation expectations among the public have actually picked up during the course of COVID because they're seeing things like food prices rise as we see the meat processing and poultry processing plant shut down and disruptions to the food chain via farming. Those things really matter to consumers. And even though they may not come up even in a weighted basket at rising inflation, there is a distortion out there. And so I still think there's this big break in what, you know, sort of the Fed sees as these parameters and what is really going on. I also worry about how does the Fed deal with, you know, the reality that they're sort of pleading for more fiscal stimulus from that from Congress. And we've yet to see that. And without that, you really get the sense that the Fed and other central banks are seeing this as a very long slog going forward. What I worry about on the other side is, you know, what are the supply shocks? Because that long slog could mean the collapse of a lot of different businesses that could cause supply disruptions and spike inflation as well. So I don't think we're moving into a higher period on um, long-term interest rates right now. That's still down the road. This is sort of a knee-jerk reaction, yeah. but it is something we have to think about. We also have to think about it in the context of we are a reserve currency. If any of that dwindles away, does that take away our permission to have lower long-term rates and financing our deficit? Yeah. And then does that bring the Fed in in terms of dealing yield curve control? Diane, it's heartening in some ways to hear once again Fed Chair Powell talk about well the role of. The Reserve when it comes to inclusion, when it comes to the focus on inequality. I know this is something that you've spoken a lot about, written, thought about as well. Do you really think this is going to work in terms of widening the base, ensuring more people do are included in the workforce? Do you think it will speak to the minority, to the female participation? How long will it take? That's the how long it takes is the most important issue. And what the Fed has concluded is that, you know, they really do have a lot of benefits by running the economy a bit warm and overshooting a bit on inflation and allowing more people on the margins to get a chance at seeing their wages accelerate it, you know, Chairman Powell was very explicit about it. it wasn't until the very later stages of the expansion from the 2008-2009 recovery that we actually saw those most marginalized workers get a chance at changing their living standards and, you know, employers reaching out further into a broader pool to employ people. That's not, you know, going to cut it in terms of dealing with the big, bigger problems we face. And you really heard it echoed across the board from central bankers that spoke today, but central bankers in general who have said, listen, this is not just the, the, the Fed cannot cure all ills, central banks cannot cure what ails us, particularly when it comes to inequality. It certainly is welcoming to see the Fed address the issue of inequality and think about it and think about it as part of their policy making deci decision making, but they have very limited tools. They've admitted that. And this is where it's not just fiscal policy for relief that Congress needs to step in or our elected officials around the world and governments around the world need to step in, but more broadly to step in to reduce systemic bias and reduce the hurdles to those who are not getting access to the labor market in the ways they should. That would raise the potential growth for the overall economy and really make it more inclusive. Once again, this week was a story of inequality. Not all recoveries are equal. And S&P 500 continued its march higher, posting record high after record high, while some of the U.S. economic data, especially in housing, is coming in red hot.
but a recent report from the Jerome Levy Forecasting Centre might reframe that rally. The centre writing that, quote, the present contrast between booming sales and profits at many big retail and consumer goods firms and the dire straits of many small firms is exceptional. 30 million small businesses existed before the pandemic, employing more than half of the US labor force. Well, now that number of small businesses still open is continuing to decline along with their revenue. We spoke about these findings and their consequences for the recovery with Srinivas Tiruvadantai. He's the research director for the publisher of that report, the Jerome Levy Forecasting Center. We started by asking him, well, if big companies are taking more profits than in a different economic environment. You know, both things are there, but the most important thing is the fiscal stimulus mm. that came in the second quarter and part of it is still there in the third quarter. Um, if you take the scale of the stimulus, the problem in the second quarter was obviously, even though there was a lot of stimulus, it could not be spent because people couldn't go out. Right. Uh, and to some extent, it was still spent. But in the third quarter, you're getting the rebound, the natural rebound from COVID, plus all the stimulus money being spent that people had saved up. The combination of that is what is propelling corporate profits higher. Overall, the scale of stimulus is so big that we are going to have a huge rebound in corporate profits in the third quarter, no matter, I mean, unless they completely don't renew any of that extra unemployment benefits. Um, so um, that's the basic basic backstory. What's happened on top of that is you have an incredibly lopsided distribution of those profits. Right. And that lopsided distribution of profits is happening because of the nature of the recovery from COVID is, is still very heavily skewed towards goods, right? People are not able to spend on services. So whatever money they're spending, whether it's on vacation, travel, um, in, uh, salons, you know, beauty parlor, eating out, all of the money that they're saving, part of it, even if a small part of it is plowed back towards consuming goods, it means a huge boost in goods consumption. Mm. In fact, if you look at consumer durable goods share of overall income, it's just shot up. It's, it's like 20-year high or something like that. You know, so that's the scale of shift towards goods. And that tends to be all very large companies, manufacturers of goods or sellers of goods, whether it is Amazon or Walmart or Home Depot or Lowe's, and also the manufacturers of those goods. Yeah. So That's the main thing here. How can policymaking, whether it be from indeed monetary policy at the moment and be more targeted towards the smaller businesses, or indeed government policy, if we ever do indeed get some sort of new fiscal relief package coming through, how can it be targeted at the smaller businesses to ensure that either money put in individuals' pockets or indeed direct aid to them can be more specific? Right. I mean, the PPP program was actually not bad. You know, I mean, nothing is perfect, but as programs go, it was not, not bad at all in getting money to the small businesses and ensuring that they could stay afloat. Um, you know, the basic point is, look, uh, even if you give them all the money in the world, um, people are not going to be able to go out unless the scare, COVID scare goes away in terms of eating out or going to the salon or, you know, uh, those those kind of things. For many of those face-to-face -face services, they are not going to go out. So the objective of policy should be to keep those businesses afloat um, so that when the COVID scare goes away, uh, they are able to come back. You know, yeah. so in the meantime, you're going to continue to see this lopsided narrative. Once the PPP money has run out, 
there is no way for these businesses uh, to keep surviving in, the, in that environment. That that's really the problem. Yeah. And and that that that, that, that issue, I don't know how that can be solved un, unless we get unless we get COVID under control. Yeah. So I mean, it's interesting, uh, Shri, because right now, I mean. The- response seems to have skipped over small businesses, uh, whether intentionally or not. I guess the question is here is what becomes the fallout of this? If we get to a stage where we have this uneven recovery, where the the more capitalized, Mm. larger corporations uh, do manage to be sort of the last people standing and these small businesses don't bounce back, at least anytime soon. I mean, does that create, I guess, tangible ramifications to GDP and to the labor market? Yes, it, it much more to, to the labor market than to GDP, but it will to GDP also because they're much more labor intensive, right? You're, if you take the co- a conglomeration of uh, average mom and pops, they are much more labor intensive relative to Walmart or Amazon or Target or anything, right? So clearly there is much more. Um, so the labor market recovery will be, will be stunted, number one. Number two, these small businesses probably mean much more for the local communities in terms of the taxes they pay also in terms of the uh, property markets there, right? I mean, the commercial property and therefore the commercial property taxes. It's not just the retail sales tax, but also the commercial property taxes. If nobody's renting, the commercial property taxes are not going to come through. And a variety of other things, maybe the local parking permit, you know, there's all kinds of things, local restaurants. So everything is being supported by the small businesses. It's a whole ecosystem. And then it puts pressure on the local governments and the state governments, which are already under trouble. And they also are very large employers and they have started to lay off people. So you, you combine that, you create a very big problem uh, for, the, for the, the economic recovery. Um, it cannot be just a, a recovery that's based on very large companies. That, that may be very, very fine for the market, at least temporarily. Um, but in the longer term, it won't be good for the market either because people need to have jobs to spend. So let's say we don't get a uh, fourth round and, we're, you know, really there's not much evidence that they're making any progress on this or that it will be of a scale that would be sufficient. When does the rubber start hitting the road here? I mean, this could uh, constitute a fairly substantial fiscal tightening after an extraordinary uh, fiscal expansion. Would you expect it to start uh, showing up in the data, consumer data, et cetera, uh, fairly soon? Yes, you know, this is where there's a little bit of, um, it's not clear. The JP Morgan just came out and said that it's not, there is no evidence that so far in the, from, the, from the credit card data, spending has been, is down. But some people are pointing out that a lot of the unemployment benefits are actually paid out to people via debit cards that are not captured in the standard credit and debit card metrics. So, there is the, the and and they're showing data from where some proprietary data showing huge fall off in in those spending. Walmart too noted there was a clear drop off in spending. Again, you know we are at this point where the data are not clear. We have to wait. Uh, the retail sales uh, data when it comes out in the middle of uh, September, we will will get a better picture. Hopefully, again, retail sales data also is going to be tainted by the fact that surveys are not going to be great in this environment. Right. Um, and, but a conclusive picture will emerge if the unemployment benefits are not extended. They will emerge by September and October. You know, for now, it is possible that people are drawing down into their saving because the saving rate did go up, shoot up quite a bit in, in the second quarter, right? So people did build up some 
uh, some bank balances, they drew down on their credit cards, so they could be spending on their regular credit cards, uh, increasing their credit card balances, yeah. drawing down on their bank balances, a variety yeah. of things are happening right now. There are too many cross-currents to be very clear about which way the yeah. trade is going. I think, but as we go into the fourth quarter, right. it'll be more palpable, probably by late September, but certainly in the fourth quarter, if, we, if these programs yeah. are extended. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This week was also a story of corporate nerves. Despite record high stock indices, we are still seeing companies preparing for less than euphoric times ahead. Coca-Cola and MGM announcing thousands of job cuts on Friday. The two companies adding to an already lengthy list of corporate cuts across sectors. Meanwhile, Capital One will it cut borrowing limits on credit cards at a time when stimulus money is running out and some people need to borrow the most. To get more perspective, we spoke with Erica Groschen, the former commissioner of the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics. She's also a senior extension faculty member at Cornell University's School of Industrial and Labor Relations and previously served as vice president in the research and statistics group of the New York Fed. Quite the title. Meanwhile, we started by asking Erica well, what those companies are seeing even amid such unprecedented monetary and fiscal policy support. Yeah, well, uh, so we are in a time of um, a lot of a confluence of a lot of different influences. So, um, you know, th- there are some elements of good news that even though we've had so many jobs lost and such a big increase in the unemployment rate, uh, still we have about 75% of the, the uh, disruptions maintaining a connection between the employer and the employee. And that's good news in the sense because, uh, in the sense that it, um, it means that uh, you, you, there's a potential for a speedier recovery because employees don't have to find a new job or uh, employers don't have to find new workers. So, and, and the training is already in place and they, yeah. could, you know, they could reconnect quickly. But this, of course, doesn't guarantee a rapid recovery because those ties can uh, weaken over time if, uh, if the worker and the employer are apart too long. Uh, some workers are not going to be able to uh, return to the labor force because of new demands at home or because of their health, uh, of health conditions. Um, and some employers, as we've been talking, as, as mm. you've mentioned, may not survive or they may need to change their business models. Yeah, there's a lot of uncertainty uh, out there, particularly for certain industries uh, like, you know, you talk about travel and tourism, uh, restaurants, mm-hmm. uh, as to whether they come back uh, anywhere close to the capacity uh, that they were uh, at prior to the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. I am curious, though, uh, when we came out of the last recession back in uh, 08, 09, uh, there was a lot of talk about not only the slow return of the labor market, but the slow return of wage growth. And a lot of that seemed to be reflected in the idea that the types of jobs that were being created out of that recession were just basically lower paying jobs. I'm wondering if the types of jobs that get created out of the current recession, are these just going to basically be the same jobs 
that were lost, or are we sort of moving to some different sort of structural sense of what the labor market is going to look like over the next couple of years? Well, recessions always act as kind of a ratchet on the labor market. They speed up structural changes that were in place because you lose the companies that were more marginal and the, the, the new jobs that are created tend to be ones that are made based on new business models and where the growth is. So I think uh, the structural changes we're likely to see are of two forms. One, those that were in place before. So move towards more automation um, adjusting to climate change and trying to prevent it, uh, globalization, those forces are still in place. Then you have to add to it the things that we've learned, the permanent changes that are caused by the pandemic itself. And this means that at least in the medium term, I think we can expect more remote work and more remote transactions, less travel. We can expect big changes in supply chain, man, supply chain management so that there'll be more of a focus on resilience and, um, and diversification of risks. But that might bring actually some, some manufacturing back to the country, for example. Uh, there'll be and how we do communal living and how we provide education, right? And then there'll be some infrastructure changes, our health care infrastructure, ventilation, vaccine development, sort of R&D, transit services. All of those are going to be, we're going to be rethinking those going forward. And also, I think we're going to be rethinking our data needs. What are our data needs to drive these important decisions going forward. So yes, I think there will be some changes that uh, that we're thinking about. I think it's too early to say whether this is going to drive, going to benefit workers with certain sets of skills versus others. But um, I, I do hope that during this time, there'll be more attention paid to the, the, the very strong skills that some workers with college degrees have that they've developed on the job. And I think in the last recession, we left those skilled workers behind. In this recession, I would hope that employers think hard about how they can find workers within the set of people who don't have a college degree that can meet their needs with just a little bit of adjustment on, um, you know, to, uh, yeah. to bring them up to uh, to what's needed yeah. because often they really have they really have ninety percent skills that are needed and that may be easier to it may be easier to train them actually than to take someone with a college degree who knows nothing about the industry involved. Yeah, so go on potential to a certain degree, Erica. I'm interested in what you rate the current policy response in the U.S. and when you look to abroad, I, it's interesting the different tactics met, played in that the U.S. allowed companies to lay off their workers, maybe just temporarily, but then they were supported by unemployment benefits sort of uh, that were ex exceeded normal amounts. But then in Europe, I think of, they were more money paid to businesses to not lay off their staff, to allow them to, allow them to be furloughed, but on full pay. Will we see basically 
a stay of execution as we are at the moment, the fact that we have seen fiscal policy ride to the rescue but eventually come to no good end if businesses are eventually prompted for fiduciary reasons, uh, to, uh, for their investor base or indeed to, to look to be more efficient, they end up keeping people on the payroll. Well, they end up losing people Put, making firings because it makes the business leaner and more efficient in the longer term. Has fiscal policy, have policies been made in the right direction, do you think? I was actually fairly impressed by the CARES Act. Now, I, uh, some people tend to call that uh, stimulus, and I don't think that that was not stimulus. We did not want the economy to come roaring back at that point. We, this, that was really uh, more relief or, or kind of economic life support. All right? But I think it worked um, for, for something that was designed so quickly and implemented so quickly, I was I was actually pretty impressed with it. Mm. Uh, the U.S., we saw poverty rates fall. We saw bankruptcies not increase at all yeah. during that time. Now, I think the fact that this has been allowed to lapse is going to be a real problem for us, for, for the U.S. going forward. Yeah. Uh, what, uh, in comparison to Europe, um, I think the jury's still out on on whether it's better to funnel it through the company or through the unemployment insurance system. Uh, there are problems on both sides. In the U.S., I, the reason we did it is because we had a mechanism to do it quickly, and we had no mechanism to do it quickly any other way, right? Yeah. In Europe, there were mechanisms, so that's what was used. And, and in, the, in these kind of crises, you, you have to work with the mechanism you have in, in place because there's no time to create a new mechanism. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Then we've got to check on how the luxury market is faring and adapting amid the downturn. With consumer confidence continuing to look pretty beaten up, how has this affected our desire to splash out on luxury purchases? Certainly the likes of Gucci owner Caring, LVMH, Montclair, Burberry, well they've all reported what is likely to be their worst quarter ever. But how are these businesses adapting? How about the luxury experiences, bespoke events? To give us the inside track, we spoke with Anastasia Sebum. She's global CEO of the members-only concierge company, Quintessentially Group, which has just published a new white paper exploring five cultural shifts that have been born or accelerated amid the COVID pandemic. We started by asking Anastasia what changes she is seeing in how her members want to spend their money. Uh, what I would say is, as you've rightly said, um, luxury, luxury spend and luxury growth, luxury industry growth came to almost a grinding halt at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, what has been encouraging with our members is that we have seen that they have started spending on luxury services again. And this could be health related concierge services. This could be very much at home experiences and at home entertainment um, and certainly around the category of bespoke self betterment. Um, so we've been encouraged, whilst they may not be spending on material goods, luxury services and enhancing their own lives in the privacy of their own home and learning and bettering themselves um, is seeing much greater spread. 
So, Anastasia, I mean, there is uh, sort of baked into luxury spending, always sort of this idea of status and the idea that you spend on some of these things to uh, effectively show off. I, I wouldn't know about that. I'm a, I'm a simple, humble man. But uh, for those of us who aren't, uh, I am curious at how that operates in an environment where not only you're dealing with the health issues, but also the economic recession. Are you going to start to see a little bit of a pullback where people become a little bit more reticent to display their wealth in the way that maybe they were willing to do so a couple years ago? Certainly, and I would say that that trend is, is something that's been happening over the last decade. If we see luxury has gone from owning to very much experiencing, and the evolution of that experience is now very much, we believe, all around connecting. So we have, in taking away most of our in-person interactions, COVID-19 has provoked a rethink and a reset for many of us. And that has placed a much greater value and emphasis on human connection. And that's both connecting to other people and connecting to oneself. So, so I would say that the trends around luxury um, are certainly discretion, but that's not just because of COVID and what's happening to the global economy. That's because luxury itself has moved away from owning and into experiencing and now into connecting. What changes do you see within luxury travel? within luxury travel. Um, the greatest trend is absolutely localized travel that we're seeing this summer. Um, so when I take the US as an example, uh, families may, our members, we may have been organizing for families to go and spend four, five, six weeks in Europe and traveling across Europe. Those families are now taking luxury RVs and going state by state, uh, wherever restrictions allow, um, and certainly want driving vacations and, and close to home. So um, localized travel, is a big one and then much more increased spend uh, where privacy and security and seclusion um, are available that could be buyouts of, of certain resorts um, it could be private aviation so i would see the two trends that we're seeing there localized travel and, and an increased spend for, for privacy and, and seclusion you talk about families there how have you been taking well, inquiries about schooling, for example. Have you seen people looking at how they can entertain the children in particular, how they can ensure that they continue to learn as we have no idea really how school's going to un involve and evolve throughout the course of the rest of the year? Yeah, what's been amazing, so, so pre-pandemic, pre our top three requests were restaurants, so culinary, um, it was global travel, and it was um, tickets to sporting and music events. Now, now those three requests, for obvious reasons, um, are no more. And now it's very much under the category of at-home entertainment, which education is a huge part of. So how can families entertain um, th themselves and their children and, and their friends and family, and also how can they educate educate their children in interesting and informative ways. Um, we're seeing a lot of our members willing to spend extra to have one-to-one -one personal experiences virtually um, with masterclass chefs um, and experts and, and thought leaders. So we're seeing a greater investment in, in willing to speak to experts um, that can provide much more educational experiences. There's a, tech, a lot of technology baked into that, uh, Anastasia, and I saw in your white paper uh, you talked about a tech lash, at least in certain areas uh, of the tech industry, and I'm wondering how those two uh, sort of factors, uh, I guess, sort of intersect. Yeah, the trend that we've, we've seen, and, and it still is around meaningful connections, but it's using technology to enhance those meaningful connections. So in the absence of being able to see loved ones, how can we integrate a birthday celebration?
via Zoom and or how can we integrate, um, you know, a, a family, a family gathering, a family reunion, but via Zoom. And, and we've had lots of our members seek to bring some of their favorite music artists into a private environment online with, with their loved ones. So, so with our audience, technology is a facilitator to what we'd otherwise be doing offline. Anastasia, very quickly, how about this, the support for your business? And how are you finding, just being at the helm of such a global business, how are you able to continue to ensure it's financially supported and indeed you're managing to get the sort of demand that you need to carry it forward and continue to grow? Yeah, of course. I think, I think my challenges as a business leader are much like those of, of every other business leader around the world, in particular in the hospitality industry. Um, co consumer trends are uncertain and how quickly can you adapt and it um, to ever-changing consumer demands. Um, I would say for me it's all about communicating with other business leaders and us pooling our trends um, as quickly as we can to, to identify what's happening with our consumers and, and adjusting our, um, our offering accordingly. Uh, we, we were fortunate in so much as of course our travel side of our business was impacted. Um, our member side of our business, our members were used to having a practical um, extra set of hands in assisting them in whatever they were doing. That need didn't change in of itself. The nuances around what those needs were did change. That's it for this episode of What You Missed This Week. If you like the podcast, make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tune in every weekday to our Daily Market Close show from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg Television and from 4 to 5 p.m. streaming on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.